So Mark 7, verse 1. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the Enter the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The the demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Let me pray uh, for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for um, these great uh, words and passages in Scripture that we will study. We pray that we will make good of explaining it 
that I will, and that we will make good of listening to it, for it merits our attention. For Jesus' sake, amen. Now, let me just say a little bit about uh, what we do if you are very new to church um, at all. Um, Christians believe that the Bible, what uh, uh, Yuko read from, is God's Word. Uh, it is inspired um, or, or given by God to people to write. And so we have real confidence that what we read and what we listen to are uh, God's words or Jesus' uh, words. And uh, the Bible is inspired by God in Bible books. And we're looking at a book called Mark, which is one of the four Gospels. They're called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they are eyewitness testimonies of Jesus' life and His teaching. So when Jesus lived on the earth around 2,000 years ago, He had disciples, people who were close to Him. And one of these disciples was a man called Peter. And Peter is the eyewitness source to Mark, the writer of this gospel. So what we're reading here happened. And how do we know that? Because people who saw it wrote it down so that we might see it as well. Now, my aim is to speak for about half an hour. That might seem a long time. Uh, the reason we, we do that on a Sunday morning or Sunday evening is because we believe as Christians that this is a, a really important thing that we do, that together, and me included, we sit and listen to God's Word. And what we see again and again and week after week is just how relevant and applied it is to our situation. And one of the things that always strikes me, and I've been a Christian for a number of years, is that you never have to work hard to convince yourself that the Bible uh, is not speaking into human hearts, whatever period of time or history uh, we live in. And the material before us this morning is um, extraordinary stuff. But it's not entirely straightforward, so we've got to work quite hard. Uh, the sermons all go up online, which gives you the chance to listen uh, afterwards. We preach twice on Sunday mornings. The better one goes online. For me, it's often the different, better one from Roger, but I'm not going to tell you which one it is. <laughs> and uh, so you can listen back, and if you ever are looking for uh, the scripts that we have, we'd be delighted to share these uh, with you so you can read as well. And I hope that's just helpful for us as a starting point. Now, in the back of the service sheet, looks like that, you'll see three headings. There are three themes or three things that Mark, the writer, wants to say to us, and they're all very, very important. He wants to speak to us about what religion without God looks like, and that's a fascinating topic. And that is absolutely contemporary. He wants to say a little bit about the, the Jewish sort of Gentile context when Jesus came to the earth, and we'll not say much about that today. And then he wants to say something very important to us about uh, what it means to be uh, unclean, the whole uh, dynamic of clean and unclean. Now, what Mark doesn't do, and we're, we're beginning to understand that he is a brilliant writer, he doesn't go, first bit of the text, religion without God, next bit, 
Jew and Gentile, third bit, clean and unclean. What he does is he takes these themes and he, he runs them like tracks all the way through this text. And that's just the way he writes, and uh, he is a marvelous writer. So, number one, religion without God. Now, the particular issue here, the particular source of kind of conflict and tension is that Jesus' disciples, his close followers, were observed, they were seen by the Jewish religious leaders. The Jewish religious leaders said to them, look, your disciples are not washing their hands appropriately, and they are eating, and therefore they are eating in a way that defiles them or makes them unclean in the eyes of God. Now, it's very important that we understand that washing your hands, it's not that that was a requirement of the Old Testament law. It was not a command of God. There's nowhere in the Bible that says you've got to do that. There was nowhere in the Old Testament law. And what had happened is that it was a practice or a tradition that had been added by the elders, the Jewish religious leaders over time. And just note the repeated emphasis in the text on what's called the tradition of the elders. So look, for example, at verses 3 to 5. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly. Why? Because that is holding to the tradition of the elders. Verse 4, when they come from the marketplaces, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe. Verse 5, the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders? Now, I could ask a question at this point. What do we make of this? That's not the right question to ask. The right question always to ask is, what does Jesus make of this? What does Jesus make of traditions that are not part of the commands of God? Well, he gives his assessment not once, not twice, but three times. Just look with me. Firstly, verses 6 to 8, he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they do worship me, teaching, just to underline that in your minds, teaching as doctrines or teaching as equivalent to the truth that God gives us, that's what doctrines are, the commandments of not God, men. Verse 8, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the traditions of men. That's the first uh, assessment of Jesus. Second is verse 9, and he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandments of God in order to establish your traditions. And third, verse 13, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you handed down. And many such things you do. Notice these words at the end. And many such things you do three times. And Mark is a writer who chooses his words very selectively. Three times, Jesus said, you have replaced the commands of God, the words of God, with your own traditions. Now, these traditions, stuff that they have added to the commands of God, had become in their understanding as the religious leaders of the Jews, 
had become in their understanding and teaching not simply of equal status to the commands of God, but of a higher status, thus making void or obsolete the commands of God. Now, that is a shocking assessment from the Lord Jesus. Why? Because He is speaking to the people who should be the shepherds, the teachers. Now, this process does not happen quickly. It happens slowly over a long period of time. It happens incrementally, imperceptibly, often bit by bit. It's like a slow step so that people don't notice or appreciate what's going on until it's too late, perhaps, or a line has been crossed and the Word of God is set aside, rejected. As I was working on this through the week, I found this helpful explanation of the process that leads to this position in the end. This came from a, an older minister speaking on this, and he's seen this happen many times in his life. The starting point, you start with the commands of God. The starting point is the Word of God. Step one, traditions are added that purport or that claim to enrich the truth. Step two, the traditions come to be regarded as equal to the truth, as of equal authority to the Word of God, so that people cannot see any distinction. And step three, over time, the traditions replace the Word of God as accepted life and practice. Now, we'll come to what they might be, these traditions, in application, but let me first, though, draw a sharp distinction between religious leaders and the people of God, the people that they lead. Religious leaders, then and now, uh, the Jewish religious leaders then, Christian elders today, ministers, are guardians or custodians of the Word of God. They are responsible to God for the care of the people of God. The leaders of God's people are often referred to as shepherds. God is the chief shepherd Religious leaders are under-shepherds. They are under God, over God's people. Religious leaders are the ones who are at fault for replacing the Word of God with traditions. They are at fault in two ways. One, because typically they are the driving force behind these traditions. They are, after all, according to Jesus, the traditions of the elders, the leaders. The second way they are at fault is that whether or not the religious leaders are responsible for the introduction of such traditions, they have a responsibility to protect, to guard the truth from those who do. Why on earth? And that little phrase, on earth, is always very significant. Why on earth would a religious leader seek to replace the Word of God with their own traditions? And there is a simple answer to that. 
because it gives them, the religious leader, authority and power. Because they become guardians of their own truth, no longer God's truth. And they reject God's authority, His leadership over them. They will not submit to the chief shepherd because they assume the role of the chief shepherd. Now, is that an exaggeration? Is that an extreme assessment? Look at what Mark is saying here. Jesus, God's appointed Messiah, King, the eternal Son of God, comes to His people Israel, the people of God, and is rejected by their leaders. They will not have the Lord as their shepherd. They will not submit to His Word. Instead, they will kill Him. For theirs is a religion without God. Literally, they will kill God. They will not have Him. They would sooner destroy Him. At which point I confess to the title of this sermon, Serious Stuff. What is the effect of religion without God? What does religion without God lead to? Jesus highlights three effects. First, with regard to worship. Verse 6, He said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honor me with their lips, but in their hearts they are far from me. In vain they worship me. Moving displays of piety from the front, profound words, emotions roused, captivating worship services, Festivals of Christian music, whether choirs or choruses, organs or drums, tradition or contemporary, whatever you like. But suppose there is a carelessness about the Word of God. What would Jesus say? And we wouldn't say it if He didn't. Submission to the Word of God is the only condition of worship acceptable to God. Second consequence with regard to social concerns, that is what Jesus is referring to in verses 9 to 13. Verse 9, you have a fine way of rejecting the command of God in order to establish your traditions. He quotes the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother as a fundamental principle in the law. Jesus then accuses the religious leaders of sidestepping the principle by the practice of korban, which is their own tradition or addition. And korban allowed an individual to promise that on his death his property assets would be given to the temple, but during his lifetime he retained possession of the property and was exempted from any requirement to provide for his elderly parents. And korban was simply a legal loophole to ensure that the individual and the religious authorities benefited materially, but parents were disadvantaged. Now, that's just a, an example from Jesus' day that is real of how they had set aside and nullified the Word of God by their own traditions. Third consequence of religion without God is with regard to personal holiness. The hypocrisy of focusing on clean hands The hypocrisy of focusing on clean hands when our hearts are unclean. 
a carelessness about the Word of God. What does God's Word say? Verse 20, whatever comes out of a person is what defiles him. For within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, so on and so forth. Religious exactness, washing our hands or any other religious tradition, while there may be some merit in that, well, is there at all? If there is no contrite humility that recognizes the impurity of our hearts. And so when we set aside the Word of God for our own traditions, our worship will no longer be acceptable to God. It will bounce off the walls of heaven as if they were brass. Our religious zeal will be more important than the practical care of the poor and needy. People who are poor and needy in our midst or on our doorstep, we will simply ignore. And we will be indifferent to personal holiness of life in the humility that recognizes what our hearts are like. It impacts everything religion without God with regard to worship, our relation to God, with regard to social concerns, our relationship to outsiders and each other, with regard to personal righteousness, our relationship ourselves to God. It is a terrible thing when religious leaders do this. When religious leaders of Israel or religious leaders of the church it is a terrible thing because the consequences that God's people end up like sheep without a shepherd. God's people are starved of the Word. It is the leaders who are culpable. And whatever the pressure on the Christian leader to set aside the Word of God, they will be held responsible in the judgment. Now, I know that is not an easy thing to hear. Let me reassure you, it is not an easy thing to hear if you are a Christian leader, but it's what Jesus says, and does it not have a ring of veracity and realism and a contemporary application to it? To the people of God then, to the church today, and the applications are all too obvious. As church leaders replace the Word of God with their own teaching that they claim as a higher authority. There's hardly a week goes by when we don't see this ball batted back and forward across the tennis court of ecclesiastical politics in our media. And with this replacement of the Word of God with our own rules and traditions, our own accommodations perhaps to the culture or the times in which we live, with this replacement there comes for the replacer or the religious leader, what? A higher standing, a greater influence, a greater authority, possibly prosperity, so very far removed from the picture of the true under-shepherd of God's people, called to teach, to guard, to be a custodian, to suffer. In Peter's words, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness to the sufferings of Christ, shepherd the flock of God among you. Now, that brings the application home, and that is exactly right. To the elders, the shepherds here, 
and I mean the elders and shepherds here. Are we submitting to the leadership of the Lord Jesus and His Word? Are we guarding the Word, teaching the Word, and suffering for it? Are we equipping others to do the same? Is our worship acceptable to God? Are we leading you in true worship? Are we committed to those in need? I find that one challenging. Are we leading you to do the same? Are we acutely conscious of our sinfulness, the impurity of our hearts, leading you by example and through our teaching to the same attitude of mind and heart? Are we domineering, wielding authority, rather than setting a godly, humble example? Are we in any way setting aside the Word of God for our own traditions? Are we willing to call this out when we see it? As leaders of God's people, we will be judged by what we do and say. Are we shepherds or not? This is serious stuff. Now, second theme. Just to pause there, I said at the beginning that uh, the Word of God is absolutely contemporary. I hope you agree that it is. Um, maybe if you're, you're really new to Christian things, this just calls it out for what it is in the world. Jew and Gentile, I'm going to just... Um, I think I'm going to just miss that out. We'll come back to that. The point here is that Jesus came to be the Messiah to the Jews. He did. He came to Israel, His own, God's chosen people. And an extraordinary event happened in history. The religious leaders of the Jews would not welcome their Messiah. Jesus didn't just click His fingers and move on. He wept over Jerusalem. You almost see in the divine heart of Jesus the inability to comprehend their rejection. And earlier in Mark, we saw how Jesus comes to terms with that rejection and inaugurates the universal church where the gospel will go to all people. And here in this passage, particularly as we come to the third episode, Jesus moves out of Jewish territory into Tyre and Sidon, that's Gentile territory, and he meets this Syrophoenician woman who is a Gentile, and she becomes the model believer. Now, let's turn to the third theme, clean and unclean. The language of clean and unclean runs right through the section. Let me take a moment to show you that. Verse 1. When the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, unclean. Verse 5, the end of verse 5, they eat with defiled hands. Verse 14, he called the people to him again. Notice Jesus is speaking to the people, to everyone, and he said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him that can defile him. As that word again, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Verses 17 and following, when they had entered the house and left the people, 
his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? There's that word again. Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled, thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. Seven times he uses that word. Then there's all the stuff about washing and clean hands and clean hearts. And in the episode with the Syrophoenician woman, verse 25, her daughter had an unclean spirit. And the reference to dogs in verses 27 and 28, dogs are unclean. To be fair, those of us who love our doggies do find that hard to understand. But they are unclean. And the ancient world had a lot more things to worry about than making dogs their pets. The scavengers. Unclean. Now here, this is so important. And if you're new to Christianity, this might be a wonderful shock. Or shockingly wonderful. Who is unclean? I'm going to read verses 20 to 23. And I just, I'm not going to get you to do this in case somebody did it, but I wonder if any of us would dare put our hand up and say, I'm exempt from this description. And Jesus said, not me, Jesus, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. So what comes out of our hearts and mind is what defiles us. It's not what we have for lunch today. For from within, out of the hearts of humanity, men and women, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery. Your hand might be wavering. Mine certainly isn't going to go up. Coveting, wanting what we don't have. Wickedness, deceit, lies, half-truths, sensuality, lust, envy, slander, speaking ill of others, pride, I'm better than them, foolishness, hands up who's never been foolish. All these things come from within, and that's what defiles us, our hearts. Can any of us, can anyone exempt themselves from this description? That is a wonderfully clear, relevant, applied, timeless description of the state of the human condition and the state of every human heart. So the question is, who is unclean? 
And the answer is every single one of us. Somebody's not happy. Apparently, you can recognize your own child's cry. Is that fair? I never could do that. Who's unclean? Every single human being. Now, the key question is this, though. Who realizes that they are unclean? Who accepts that they are unclean in the episodes that we read this morning? Not the religious leaders, but the Gentile Syrophoenician woman. She is the example of true faith in Jesus. Where are you? Where am I? Are we with the religious leaders or with this woman? I think we might think neither. We are somewhere between the two or some middle ground. There is no middle ground. There is no no man's land. The place of saving faith is to recognize that we have unclean hearts and are as unworthy of receiving the crumbs of the bread of life from Jesus as that woman was. That is the place of saving faith. But if we are there, we are accepting that the only person who can save us is Jesus. And our eyes are open to the fact that no amount of hand washing, no amount of religious rituals, no amount of anything, no amount of sermons we listen to, no amount of singing is going to clean my heart. Only Jesus can give us a clean heart. And He does that by giving His life on the cross. Out of His heart there came no evil and only good. And He took the judgment we deserved so that by faith we can have a new heart. This is serious stuff, but it's wonderful and glorious when you see it. I pray we all do. Let's do that now. Our Father, we thank you for these sober yet wonderful words. So true, how true they are. How absurd to think that washing our hands, while it may give us good hygiene, which is not unimportant, it will not wash our hearts clean, which is far more important. Father, we pray that we will all understand. We will all have our eyes open to see that like that woman, we are unclean. 
All we need to do is look in to our hearts or listen to what comes out of our mouth or look at what our actions reveal and we realize that we are unclean. Help us to realize, Lord, that we are no more worthy of receiving the bread of life than this woman. But it is in that realization that we meet Jesus Christ who gives His life for humble, repentant sinners. And we pray, Lord, that we will understand and respond appropriately. And keep us, Lord, as leaders here, free of traditions which nullify the words of Jesus. For His sake and for His glory. Amen.